This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of slipped capital femoral epiphysis, or SCIFI, from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Slipped capital femoral epiphysis is a common condition of the proximal femoral physis that leads to slippage of the metaphysis relative to the epiphysis and is most commonly seen in adolescent obese males. The diagnosis can be confirmed with radiographs of the hip. Treatment is usually percutaneous pin fixation. Contralateral pinning is indicated for patients at high risk, such as those with an initial slip at age less than 10, obese males, and those with endocrine disorders. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, skiffy is the most common disorder affecting adolescent hips and is found in 10 per 100,000 patients. As far as the demographics, skiffy is more common in obese children. The male-to-female ratio is 2 to 1.4. Specific ethnicities are at more risk, such as African Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Latinos, and it's also more common during periods of rapid growth, specifically 10 to 16 years of age. The average age is 13.4 for boys and 12.2 for girls, and keep in mind that skiffies are associated with puberty. With respect to location, the left hip is more commonly involved, however it's bilateral in 17 to 50% of patients, or approximately 25% on average. Risk factors for skiffy include obesity, acetabular retroversion and femoral retroversion, as well as history of previous radiation therapy to the femoral head region. Keep in mind that obesity is the single greatest risk factor. Recent data shows a trend towards younger age and increased frequency of bilaterality at presentation, possibly related to increased rates of childhood obesity. Acetabular retroversion and femoral retroversion is a risk factor as there is increased mechanical shearing forces at the physis in these conditions. As far as the pathophysiology of skiffy, the mechanism is due to mechanical forces acting on a susceptible physis. The pathoanatomy involves slippage occurring through the hypertrophic zone of the physis. This has been a testable point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. Slippage occurs through the hypertrophic zone of the physis. Histology sections reveal granulation tissue between the columns in the hypertrophic zone. In adolescence, the perichondrial ring thins and weakens. In addition, undulating mammillary processes in the physis unlocks, further destabilizing the physis. The physis is still vertical in this age group that is 160 degrees at birth to 125 degrees at skeletal maturity, resulting in increased shearing forces. The epiphyseal tubercle can provide a rotational pivot point. This is the anatomic structure in the posterior superior epiphysis that shrinks with skeletal maturity. Finally, keep in mind that the cartilage in the hypertrophic zone acts as a weak spot. As far as angulation, the metaphysis translates anterior and externally rotates. Again, the metaphysis translates anterior and externally rotates. The epiphysis remains in the acetabulum and lies posterior to the translated metaphysis. Again, the epiphysis remains in the acetabulum and lies posterior to the translated metaphysis. A skiffy is similar to Salter-Harris type 1 fractures, but may differ by antecedent epiphysiolysis, slower displacement, and finally keep in mind that the periosteum remains intact in chronic skiffy, however in acute skiffy, the periosteum can be partially torn anteriorly over the prominent metaphysis. Associated conditions with skiffy include endocrine disorders and Down syndrome. Associated endocrine conditions include hypothyroidism, renal osteodystrophy, growth hormone deficiency, 
and panhypopituitarism. Hypothyroidism is the most common etiology of non-idiopathic skiffy. Labs tend to have an elevated TSH. In the setting of renal osteodystrophy, labs will have an elevated BUN and creatinine. Indications for an endocrine workup in the setting of a skiffy include a child who is less than 10 years old and a child whose weight is less than the 50th percentile. Again, indications for endocrine workup in the setting of a skiffy include a child who is less than 10 years old and a child whose weight is less than the 50th percentile. Now, let's talk about the classification of skiffy. And the ones to know include the loader classification, which is based on the ability to bear weight, the temporal classification, which is based on the duration of symptoms. However, this is rarely used, and there is no prognostic information with the temporal classification. The Southwick slip angle classification is based on the femoral, epiphyseal, diaphyseal angle difference. Finally, the grading system for skiffies is based on the percentage of slippage. Now we'll go into detail of each of these classification systems. The loader classification is divided into stable and unstable. Stable is defined as the ability to bear weight with or without crutches, and there is a minimal risk of osteonecrosis that is less than 10% in skiffies that are stable. An unstable skiffy, defined by the loader classification, is the inability to ambulate, not even with crutches, and there is a high risk of osteonecrosis in the unstable type. Originally, it was thought to be approximately 47%, but recent data suggests approximately 24%. Keep in mind that the loader classification provides prognostic information for complication of femoral head osteonecrosis. Moving on to the temporal classification, which is again based on the duration of symptoms, however, is rarely used as there is no prognostic information. The temporal classification is divided into three types, acute, chronic, and acute on chronic. Acute is defined as symptoms that persist for less than three weeks. Chronic is defined as symptoms that persist for more than three weeks. And acute on chronic is defined as acute exacerbation of long-standing symptoms. The Southwick slip angle classification, again, is based on the femoral epiphyseal diaphyseal angle difference and is divided into three types, mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is classified as less than 30 degrees, moderate is classified as 30 to 50 degrees, and severe is classified as greater than 50 degrees. Keep in mind that the epiphyseal diaphyseal angle can be measured on both the AP and frog lateral pelvis radiographs. The slip angle classification is based on the degree of difference between the affected and unaffected hip. If bilateral hips are involved, use 145 degrees as the unaffected hip reference for the AP and 10 degrees as the unaffected hip reference for the lateral. Finally, the grading system for Skiffy is based on the percentage of slippage, and this is divided into three grades. Grade 1 is 0 to 33% of slippage, grade 2 is 34 to 50% of slippage, and grade 3 is greater than 50% of slippage. Patients that present with a Skiffy may have symptoms of groin and thigh pain, which is the most common presentation. They may also show a limp, specifically an antalgic gait, and may have an externally rotated foot progression angle. Patients with Skiffy can frequently present as knee pain in 15 to 50% of patients. Again, patients with Skiffy can frequently present as knee pain in 15 to 50% of cases. This is due to pain activation of the medial obturator nerve. Again, this is due to pain activation of the medial obturator nerve, and this can lead to a misdiagnosis. As far as motion, patients prefer to sit in a chair with the affected leg crossed over the other. As far as duration, symptoms are usually present for weeks to several months before diagnosis is made. 
Again, symptoms are usually present for weeks to several months in Skiffy before a diagnosis is made. On physical exam, you may notice an abnormal gait slash limp, specifically one that is antalgic, waddling, and an externally rotated gait or a Trendelenburg gait. You may also notice that there is decreased hip motion. Specifically, patients will have an obligatory external rotation during passive flexion of the hip, and this is known as the Drummond sign. This is due to a combination of synovitis and impingement of the displaced anterior lateral femoral metaphysis on the acetabular rim. Decreased hip motion can manifest as loss of hip internal rotation, abduction, and flexion. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. Decreased hip motion can manifest as loss of hip internal rotation, abduction, and flexion. Physical exam may also reveal abnormal leg alignment, specifically an externally rotated foot progression angle. Finally, physical exam may elicit weakness, specifically thigh atrophy. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a frog leg lateral of the right and left hip. The lateral radiograph is the best way to identify a subtle slip. Findings on the AP of the pelvis include Klein's lines, epiphysiolysis, as well as blurring of the proximal femoral metaphysis, specifically the metaphyseal blanch sign of steel. Klein's line is a line drawn along the superior border of the femoral neck. Klein's line will intersect less of the femoral head or not at all in a child with a skiffy. Klein's line intersects the lateral femoral head in a normal hip due to the natural lateral overhang of the epiphysis. Klein's line should be used to evaluate for asymmetry between sides. Epiphysiolysis, or growth plate widening or lucency, is an early radiographic finding. As far as blurring of the proximal femoral metaphysis or the metaphyseal blanch sign of steel, this is seen on the AP due to overlapping of the metaphysis and a posteriorly displaced epiphysis. An MRI may help diagnose a pre-slip condition when radiographs are negative. Again, MRI may help diagnose a pre-slip condition when radiographs are negative. Findings on MRI may include growth plate widening or edema in the metaphysis, which manifests as a decreased signal on T1 and an increased signal on T2. Treatment of Skiffy is usually operative, and options include percutaneous in-situ fixation, contralateral hip prophylactic fixation, an open epiphyseal reduction and fixation. Percutaneous in situ fixation is indicated for both stable and unstable hips. As far as the technique, one versus two cannulated screws is controversial. Keep in mind, however, that two screw constructs have greater biomechanical stability than the single screw constructs. The benefit of two screws needs to be considered in the face of greater screw-related complications, including articular surface penetration. Capsulotomy is controversial, however, it does decrease intracapsular pressure. This is primarily indicated in the setting of an unstable skiffy, where the intracapsular pressure in an unstable skiffy is double that of control hips, while pressure in the stable skiffy is roughly equal to control hips. Capsulotomy may mitigate intracapsular tamponade, though there is no clear evidence that this reduces avascular necrosis rates. As far as contralateral hip prophylactic fixation, the indications are controversial. However, the current indications are high-risk patients for contralateral slip. That is in approximately 40 to 80% of patients. High-risk patients include those that have an initial slip at a young age that is less than 10 years old, patients that have open triradiate cartilage, obese males, as well as in the setting of endocrine disorders, for example, hypothyroidism. 
an open epiphyseal reduction and fixation has a controversial indication, however it can be indicated in unstable and severe slips. The technique involves a capital realignment via the modified Dunn procedure. Operative management of symptoms after initial treatment can include osteochondroplasty and proximal femoral osteotomy. An osteochondroplasty is indicated for symptomatic femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, of the cam lesion from the metaphyseal bump. Osteochondroplasty can also be indicated for mild to moderate skiffy deformity, that is, with a slip angle of less than 30 degrees. Approach options for osteochondroplasty can be arthroscopic, limited anterior arthrotomy, or surgical hip dislocation. A proximal femoral osteotomy is indicated for painful or function-limiting proximal femoral deformity. It's also indicated for severe skiffy deformity, defined as a slip angle of greater than 30 to 45 degrees, and finally, absence of severe hip osteoarthritis and osteonecrosis. As far as the technique of a proximal femoral osteotomy, you can perform this using a femoral neck cuneiform osteotomy, an intertrochanteric or an Imhauser osteotomy, or a subtrochanteric or a Southwick osteotomy. The femoral neck cuneiform osteotomy can provide the greatest correction of deformity. However, its use is controversial due to the high rates of avascular necrosis, that is in 37% of cases, and osteoarthritis, also in 37% of cases. The intertrochanteric or Imhauser osteotomy is the most commonly used for a proximal femoral osteotomy. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Specifically, we'll talk about percutaneous in situ fixation, surgical hip dislocation, open capital realignment and fixation, otherwise known as the modified Dunn procedure, osteochondroplasty, and flexion intertrochanteric or an Imhauser femoral osteotomy. The goal of a percutaneous in situ fixation is to stabilize the epiphysis from further slippage. The technique first involves reduction, and keep in mind that forceful reduction is not indicated and increases the risk of osteonecrosis. A, quote, serendipitous reduction is often obtained with positioning on the OR table. As far as number of screws, a single cannulated screw is typically sufficient and decreases the risk of osteonecrosis compared to multiple pins. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. A single cannulated screw is typically sufficient and decreases the risk of osteonecrosis compared to multiple pins. Some surgeons may add a second screw for unstable skiffy. As far as screw insertion, this can be perpendicular to the physis or oblique to the physis. In cases where you choose perpendicular to the physis, the screw starts on the anterior surface of the proximal femur in order to cross perpendicular to the physis and enter into the central portion of the femoral head on both the AP and lateral views, that is center-center. Keep in mind that the starting point should not be medial to the intertrochanteric line, as this will result in impingement between the head of the screw and acetabulum with hip flexion. So again, as far as being perpendicular to the physis, the screw starts on the anterior surface of the proximal femur in order to cross perpendicular to the physis and enter into the central portion of the femoral head on both the AP and lateral views, that is center-center. In addition, remember that the starting point should not be medial to the intertrochanteric line as this will result in impingement between the head of the screw and acetabulum with hip flexion. As far as screw insertion oblique to the physis, in severe slips, a relatively oblique insertion starting at the intertrochanteric region may be required rather than perpendicular to avoid impingement from the head of the screw. As far as screw position, advance until five threads cross the physis. Again, advance until five threads cross the physis. 
less than five threads engaged in the epiphysis increases the risk of progression of the slip greater than 10 degrees. In cases of less than five threads, 41% progressed, and in cases with greater than or equal to five threads, 0% progressed. Finally, keep in mind that screws should be at least five millimeters from the subchondral bone in all views. As far as imaging, confirm that the pin is not penetrating the hip joint. The approach withdraw technique is when you rotate the hip from the maximal internal rotation or maximal external rotation under live fluoroscopy. The screw tip appears to approach the subchondral bone, then withdraw from it. The moment of change from approach to withdraw is the true position of the screw and can be used to insert the screw to appropriate position. The appropriate position is confirmed when the screw does not violate the articular surface in all views. Postoperatively, stable slips are able to bear weight after fixation. Unstable slips are kept touchdown weight-bearing. As far as outcomes, percutaneous in-situ fixation does not treat deformity at the head-neck junction. Unsatisfactory outcomes are seen in 10 to 20% that have resulted in advocacy of other techniques to correct the deformity at initial treatment to mitigate long-term risk of chondral damage. Moving on to surgical hip dislocation and an open capital realignment and fixation or the modified Dunn procedure, the goal is to correct the acute proximal femoral deformity, protect femoral head blood supply, and stabilize the epiphysis. As far as the technique, surgical hip dislocation via the Gibson approach or the GANS technique is commonly used. This is done in the lateral decubitus position, a straight lateral skin incision is centered over the greater trochanter, and the interval here is the gluteus maximus, which is innervated by the inferior gluteal nerve, and the gluteus medius, which is innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. Next, you will perform a trochanteric flip osteotomy, and then a Z-shaped anterior capsulotomy can be done to visualize the slip with the prominent metaphysis. Then you will temporarily pin the epiphysis with K-wires prior to dislocation. A bone hook is used around the femoral neck for traction, then the ligamentum teres is cut, and then finally the hip is dislocated. Next, you will develop retinacular soft tissue flaps and incise the periosteum along the femoral neck. You will extend the incision distally to the level of the lesser trochanter to reduce tension on the retinacular vessels. Next, you will bluntly develop periosteal flaps anteriorly and posteriorly using a periosteal elevator. Next, you will mobilize the epiphysis. Starting anterior, use the chisel to free the epiphysis entirely from the metaphysis. The epiphysis will remain attached to the posterior retinacular flap, which is the blood supply. Then you will debride the metaphysis. There will be prominent reactive callus along the posterior metaphysis, which needs to be removed to permit proper epiphysial reduction and avoid kinking of the retinacular vessels. Next, you will reduce the epiphysis to the metaphysis. Fixation will involve two to three 3.0 millimeter K-wires, one antegrade starting from the fovea across the epiphysis and one to two retrograde across the epiphysis. Postoperatively, after a modified done procedure, patients will be touchdown weight-bearing for six weeks. As far as the outcomes, the complication rate is 37%. Avascular necrosis rates approach 26%, which is comparable to 24% avascular necrosis rate for unstable skiffy treated with in-situ pinning. Keep in mind that the modified done procedure has a steep learning curve. Moving on to osteochondroplasty, the goal is to address pain and loss of motion related to hip impingement from the prominent metaphyseal bump in mild to moderate chronic skiffy deformity. The technique can be done arthroscopically. This is reserved for mild skiffy deformity, and in this approach, you will remove the metaphyseal bump with the arthroscopic burr. 
However, it's difficult to fully resect superior and lateral portions of the bump. A limited anterior arthrotomy is useful when the metaphyseal bump cannot be fully removed arthroscopically. You will use the modified Smith-Peterson approach for a limited anterior arthrotomy. Surgical hip dislocation can be used for moderate skiffy deformity, and this will be done with a trochanteric flip osteotomy. The hip is dislocated anteriorly, a curved osteotome is used to remove the bump, and a burr can be used to recreate the normal contour of the head-neck junction. As far as outcomes of osteochondroplasty, there is no long-term data. However, there can be improvement in pain and function. No osteonecrosis is reported. However, poor outcomes are associated with pre-existing cartilage damage. Finally, a flexion intertrochanteric or an Imhauser femoral osteotomy is done with the goal to correct symptomatic proximal femoral deformity and moderate to severe chronic skiffy deformity. The technique is done with a lateral approach, so in the supine position, a straight lateral skin incision from the greater trochanter distal down to the femoral shaft is carried out. You will then reflect the vastus lateralis to expose the lateral femur. A transverse osteotomy is done just proximal to the lesser trochanter. As far as correction, flexion is achieved through the osteotomy, then internal rotation is done of the distal shaft, and then you can carry out a mild valgus correction. Postoperatively, after an Imhauser femoral osteotomy, patients will be touchdown weight-bearing for three months. As far as outcomes, patients have good to excellent functional results. There is a 2 to 7% avascular necrosis rate, and this option is useful to prevent arthrosis. Some overall complications of skiffy to keep in mind include osteonecrosis of the femoral head, contralateral hip skiffy, chondrolysis, residual proximal femoral deformity and limb length discrepancy, slip progression, delayed diagnosis, infection, chronic pain, degenerative arthritis, pin-associated proximal femur fracture, and finally labral tearing as well as degeneration. Osteonecrosis of the femoral head may occur as the result of initial trauma. This has an increased risk with unstable slips that is approximately 24 to 47%, and this is the most common predictor. Osteonecrosis of the femoral head may also occur as the result of an operative complication in 4 to 6% of cases. And keep in mind that hardware placement in the posterior superior femoral neck has the greatest risk of disrupting the vascular supply. Contralateral hip skiffy is the most common complication after unilateral surgical fixation in 20 to 80% of cases. Risk factors for contralateral slip include males, obesity, young age of the initial slip that is less than 10 years old, and open triradiate cartilage, as well as endocrine disorders. Weight loss programs are important as decreased BMI reduces the rates of subsequent contralateral skiffy. Chondrolysis happens in 0-2% to 2% of cases. Patients present with narrow joint space, pain, and decreased motion. Chondrolysis is associated with unrecognized implant penetration of the articular surface in 0-2% to 2% of cases. Keep in mind that pin placement into the anterior superior quadrant of the femoral head has the highest rate of joint penetration. Intraarticular hardware penetration is best assessed by CT scan. Chondrolysis is also associated with spica cast immobilization. Finally, keep in mind that chondrolysis has a decreased prevalence with modern fluoroscopy. As far as residual proximal femoral deformity and limb length discrepancy, an increased alpha angle is associated with symptomatic impingement. This is caused by failure of the proximal femur to remodel. This is otherwise known as a pistol grip deformity. 
Treatment for residual proximal femoral deformity and limb length discrepancy can be an intertrochanteric osteotomy or an Imhauser osteotomy, which produces flexion, internal rotation, and valgus. Residual proximal femoral deformity and limb length discrepancy can also be treated with a subtrochanteric osteotomy, otherwise known as a Southwick osteotomy, or a femoral neck cuneiform osteotomy. However, this is controversial due to the high rate of osteonecrosis and arthritis. Slip progression is another potential complication that occurs in 1-2% to of cases following single-screw fixation. Delayed diagnosis is another potential complication, and predictors include knee pain, Medicaid insurance coverage, and a stable slip. Keep in mind that 88% of patients that are presented with an unstable skippy had unappreciated antecedent symptoms for approximately 42 days prior to diagnosis. Infection is another potential complication that can happen in 0-2% to of cases. Chronic pain can occur in 5-10% to of cases. And finally, with respect to labral tearing and degeneration, this can be seen with high anterior and medial second screw in situ fixation. So if the screw lies medial to the intertrochanteric line on AP radiograph, it has an increased risk of impingement on the acetabulum and labrum with hip flexion. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 12-year-old patient is scheduled to undergo in-situ fixation of the right hip for chronic slipped capital femoral epiphysis or skiffy. What would be an indication for prophylactic in-situ fixation of the contralateral hip in the same admission? And the choices are 1. Chronicity of initial slip. 2. Height over 180 centimeters. 3. Age over 12 years old. 4. Renal osteodystrophy. And 5. Elite athlete. The correct answer to this question is 4. Renal osteodystrophy. So an indication for prophylactic in situ fixation of the contralateral hip for skiffy would include renal osteodystrophy. The most common factors shown to increase the risk of bilateral skiffy include hypothyroidism, renal osteodystrophy, male and younger age, defined as less than 10 years old. Riyad et al. retrospectively reviewed the records of 90 patients with skiffy seen between 1990 and 2002. 20 patients, or 22% studied, had bilateral skiffy at presentation, and 70 patients, or 78% studied, were unilateral. Of these 70 patients, 16 or 23% of the patients later developed a contralateral skiffy. All girls younger than 10 years and all boys younger than 12 years who presented with unilateral skiffy developed a contralateral slip, whereas no girl older than 13 years old and no boy older than 14 years old developed a contralateral slip. Jensen et al. reported on a 20-year follow-up of 62 cases of patients with skiffy. At first presentation, 5 out of the 62 patients had bilateral skiffy. Further, 9 out of 57 patients had slipping diagnosed in the contralateral hip during adolescence 1 to 3 years after the primary operation. At the follow-up examination, 20 years after the primary operation, radiographs showed bilateral sequelae of slipping in 30 of 62 patients. Wences et al. reviewed 66 patients, or 76 hips, treated for skiffy with a mean follow-up of 38 years, with a range between 21 to 57 years. Results showed the clinical outcome was good in 35 patients, or 69% of the patients studied, as defined as when the patient had not undergone total hip replacement, when the Harris hip score was 85 points or above, or the patient had no pain. 
They also showed that corrective femoral osteotomy did not improve the outcomes in hips with large slip angles and acute skiffy had poor outcomes. Daurani et al. reviewed the current practice for the treatment of skiffy. 277 members of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America responded to the survey. They found that surgeons in academic practice, surgeons with less than or equal to 15 years in practice, and surgeons treating greater number of skiffies are more likely to use surgical hip dislocation to acutely reduce the slip. Moving on to the next question. A 13-year-old overweight patient presents to the emergency department with left knee pain and is lying in bed with his hip slightly flexed. He is found on imaging to have a severe slipped capital femoral epiphysis. If his leg is not manipulated for imaging, in what abnormal position is his left hip most likely to appear on an anteroposterior pelvic radiograph? And the choices are 1. Internal rotation, 2. External rotation, 3. Extension, 4. Abduction, and 5. Adduction. The correct answer to this question is 2. External rotation. So patients with a slipped capital femoral epiphysis have obligate external rotation of the hip with flexion due to displacement of the femoral neck metaphysis relative to the epiphysis. Slipped capital femoral epiphysis is a common disorder of the pediatric hip found most frequently in obese males. In more significant cases, this deformity induces obligate external rotation of the hip with flexion, otherwise known as the Drummond sign. Kamagaya et al. specifically studied the relationship of the Drummond sign and femoral acetabular impingement in Skiffy. They categorized 92 patients into Jones type A, B, and C and found a positive Drummond sign in 25%, 75%, and 100% of patients in each of these groups respectively. Chen et al. reported the results of a 34-patient series who underwent arthroscopic treatment of residual deformity after Skiffy. They found pain relief and improvement of the obligate external rotation deformity in 88% of patients with improvement in internal rotation during flexion from negative 22 degrees to 10 degrees. Moving on to the next question, which of the following treatment techniques decreases the risk of osteonecrosis in patients with unstable slipped femoral capital epiphysis? And the choices are 1. Open reduction and pinning with multiple cannulated screws in an inverted triangle configuration. 2. Closed reduction and pinning with multiple cannulated screws in an inverted triangle configuration. 3. Closed reduction and pinning with a single cannulated screw. 4. In situ percutaneous pinning with multiple cannulated screws in an inverted triangle configuration. And 4. In situ percutaneous pinning with a single cannulated screw. The correct answer to this question is 5, inside two percutaneous pinning with a single cannulated screw. So as described in the review article by Loader, an unstable skiffy is one where the child cannot walk, with or without crutches. Reduction attempts of unstable skiffy have been associated with a higher rate of osteonecrosis after pinning. Osteonecrosis is also more likely to develop in patients treated with multiple pins than in those treated with a single cannulated screw. However, in unstable skiffies, surgeons often elect to utilize two screws for stabilization. Inverted triangle screw placement is utilized for adults with femoral neck fractures. Tompmakova concluded that pinning in situ without reduction with a single cannulated screw is the method of choice for the treatment of a slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Moving on to the next question. A 14-year-old overweight boy complains of vague left knee pain, which worsens with activity. 
he has an antalgic gait and increased external rotation of his foot progression angle compared to the contralateral side. Knee radiographs, including stress views, are negative. What is the next step in management? And the choices are 1. Knee MRI, 2. Knee CT, 3. AP pelvis and frog lateral views, 4. Diagnostic knee arthroscopy, and 5. Hip MRI. The correct answer to this question is 3. AP pelvis and frog lateral views. So in an adolescent boy with knee pain, always examine the hips and consider hip pathology, especially if the knee workup is negative. Matava et al. discusses knee pain as the initial symptom of Skiffy. This retrospective review of 65 patients found that 15 or 23% noted distal thigh pain, knee pain, or both as the presenting symptom. 12 were chronic slips, that is greater than 3 weeks of pain, and 3 acute on chronic. Knee and thigh pain resulting from intraarticular hip pathology is a referred pain phenomenon and is a common reason for misdiagnosis of Skiffy leading to delay in treatment, possible further displacement, and worse prognosis. That's all for this review about slipped capital femoral epiphysis or Skiffy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.